I'd like to thank Rabbi Yitzchak Israel for inviting me uh, this evening to address the Chashava Kehillah of Kaladas Yeshurun on their weekly Chumash Shir, which I understand was uh, founded uh, many, many years ago by the great Novominsky Rebbe, and obviously it's a tremendous chus to be a part of anything that the Rebbe instituted, and his uh, his neshama should have an aliyah every week as uh, as many people are uh, offering divrei Taira and divrei chizuk to uh, the Chashavat Sibor of Ashkenites. So this week's parsha is Parshas Va'era, and we have seven makas that appear in the parsha, and of course Parshas Bay, next week's parsha, which is Gematria three, has the last three makas. And the question that we should try to think about is what exactly is the uh, takeaway from the Makkas? As we lay in the Makkas and we read about them and we study them, and of course on Seder night we go into them even more beyond, what exactly are we supposed to take from the, uh, from the, the Nisim, the great miracles that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, brought in the process of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. So, of course, the simple answer to that question would be that when we understand Nisim, when we understand what a miracle is, a miracle is something supernatural. Supernatural means it goes above and beyond what we consider to be nature. And so, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is able to override Teva, if he's able to basically shift Teva from what we know it is, or we know it to be, then obviously HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Teva and controls Teva. Because you can only override something that you really understand how it works. And for example, if you want to uh, uh, understand, if a person could override a, uh, a computer program, it's very likely that he knows how to write the computer code to begin with. So if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is able to override Teva, clearly that means HaKadosh Baruch Hu is fully in control of Teva, and by extension he created Teva, which we know he did. And so all of these great Nisim point in the direction that HaKadosh Baruch Hu controls everything in the world. The Ramban, at the end of Parshas Bait, uh, which is arguably the most famous Ramban in Chumash, says that this is the reason why we have so many mitzvahs that commemorate Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. If you think about it, we have dozens and dozens of mitzvahs in the Torah that all really point in the direction of reminding us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out of Mitzrayim. Just a few examples, the mezuzah that we have on our doorpost, the tzitzis that we wear, tefillin, the mitzvah of Pijin Ben, the mitzvah of Peter Chamar, the, the mitzvah of, uh, of Zechiris Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of Matzus, of Mar, of Karban Pesach, the list goes on and on, and there are so many others. Shabbos, of course, Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Yantav Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. What are all of these mitzvahs? Why are we have to constantly be reminded that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out of Mitzrayim? And the Ramban famously says that the point of reminding us that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim is because minanisim hagedaylem v'amaforsamim, from the great, overt, publicized nisim, from the big, big nisim of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, like 
the Makis, and like, of course, Kriyas Yamsov, these are such great, fabulous miracles that are, we don't really have them today anymore. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did them at that time in history. But when we study them and we remind ourselves that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is capable of such gigantic miracles, a person will come to recognize that the entire world, everything that goes on in our daily life, are also miraculous. And, and he says if a person does not believe this, if a person does not believe that everything is orchestrated by Hashem, no matter what it is in our life, everything big and small that goes on in our daily life is all also miracles that are being brought about by HaKadosh Baruch Hu's orchestration. If you don't believe that, says the Ramban, that you, then you don't have a chilek, you cannot claim to be a card-carrying member of Teres Meisha, of, of a believer in the Torah of Meisha Rabbeinu, until you believe that everything that happens to you is all Nisim and there's no Teva whatsoever. What we call nature in the world is really all miraculous. So the Meshachachma uh, writes in a Sefer that, the, that really what, a, what Teva is, Teva is nothing but a constant miracle. We consider it not to be miraculous because we're so used to it. So when we see grass growing, when we see flowers blooming, when we see uh, a fly buzzing around, or when we see clouds or rain or, or a baby being born or a human being breathing, everything that, that we go through that we call teva is really miraculous. It's just that we're so used to it, it's so constant that there's nothing really exciting about it. It's not like the sea is splitting. But the sea splitting is all, is also the Yad Hashem, just like everything else that goes on around us, big and small. And so this is one major takeaway that we should think about as we're laying these parshas of Va'era, Bay B'Shalach, the great miracles that we're going to see are really all pointing in the direction that everything is really miraculous. And so the Ramban says that that's why we have so many mitzvahs that are Zeichel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim that remind us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out of Mitzrayim because by reminding ourselves constantly about the great miracles that Hashem wrought for Klal Yisrael, it by, def, by extension points to the obvious conclusion that everything in this world even the small minutia, the details that we overlook, that we chalk up to being mere teva, is also nothing short of miraculous, and that everything, even teva, is all designed and controlled by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now there's another thing that we take from these nisim that took place in Mitzrayim, from the Dam and Sfardea and Kinnim, etc. What is that? And it's something, by the way, that Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, the great Magid of Eretz Yisrael, who was Nifter a few years ago, he says that the truth is that this takeaway that we're about to speak about is even more important than the first one, if that's possible to be said. Because the first one, the Ramban's reason, is so fundamental that he says you don't even, you can't even claim to be a regular from Yid, uh, uh, somebody that believes in the Torah, if you don't believe that. So obviously what we're going to say after that, if Rabbi Yaakov Golinsky says, 
it's the main takeaway from the Nisma Vietzis Israel. Obviously, it's something that we have to really pay attention to and think about a lot. And I think it's going to uh, really be something that illuminates our daily life and especially the times that we're living in currently. When Parai was looking out of his palace windows on Erev the Makkas, right before the Makkas began, so try to put yourself for a second in, in the shoes of Parai. He glances outside of his window and everything is perfect. He's the monarch of the most powerful nation in the world, of Mitzrayim, and he has many, many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that he rules over. He has the Jewish people as his slaves. He has free labor, um, very loyal uh, slaves that, uh, uh, you know, that are going about doing all of the, the, the requirements that he puts to them. And everything is perfect. The Nile River, which was such an important part of the Egyptian uh, experience, it was like an avidazara for them. It was it provided them uh, all of the nutri- nutrition for their crops. It was uh, the the Nile River was tremendous. It was water. H two O was flowing in the Nile River. Regular regular water that you could see through, that you could drink, that could irrigate all of their fields. All of the tsvardeim, all of the the frogs were in the yar. They were somewhere in the also in the Nile or in the uh, in the rivers. The kinim, the lice were in people's heads normally, and the the wild animals were deep in the forests. Everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be. Everything was perfect. Suddenly, without any real warning, the makas began to be unleashed against Parah and Mitzrayim. Of course, there was warning. Meshur Rabbeinu did warn them. Aaron warned them. But he wasn't really expecting anything to change. He had everything going for him. Everything that he wanted was firmly in his gri- in his grasp. Suddenly, the makas began to become unleashed against him. And all of a sudden, instead of the Nile being what he thought it was, regular water and blessed water, all of a sudden the Nile suddenly turns into blood. And then the frogs start coming out of nowhere, leaping all over the place in his palace and in the private people's homes and into the ovens, into the pots. And they're beating the Tzvardeya and, and they keep splitting and splitting and splitting. And there are millions and millions of Tzvardeya and they were going crazy. And the wild animals started coming out of the, out of the forests and into the regular uh, urban and, and suburban populations, all of a sudden, from what was going on yesterday, when everything was perfect, tomorrow looks horrible. What, what was assumed by Paro to be, to be as it is, suddenly he found that the whole world that he knew was different. Everything changed. And the things that he assumed to be all of a sudden he discovered that they really were not, much to his chagrin, much to his surprise. And this is a very, very important foundational yisoid lesson to be taken from this parasha, that you should never, ever assume, 
like Paro did, that everything is fine because everything is only fine because that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it to be today. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants everything to become chaotic, that could happen tomorrow, Rahman al-Islam. And it happens very quickly, and the world that we're living in is a lot more fragile than we actually want to believe that it is. There's a b'risa that's brought in Meseches Chagiga. The b'risa says, Tanya Rabyesi Aimer, Oilahem Labrios, woe to the people of the world. Shareis, they see with their eyes, the Ainanyaides Marais, but they don't really understand what they're looking at. Aimdais, they're standing on something, the Ainanyaides Al Mahinaimdais, but they don't really understand fully upon what they stand. And then the Gemara goes through a lot of different steps into trying to give us a little understanding on what we're standing upon, even though nobody has any idea of what we really are standing on. He says, the planet Earth, as we know it, is standing on amudim, on pillars, whatever that means. Obviously, these are very esoteric, Kabbalistic concepts, but we're going to just keep it as simple as we can. The Earth is standing on pillars. The pillars, the Brisa continues, is standing on water. The water stands on mountains, the mountains on wind, the wind in a storm, and the storm is all bundled up, cradled in the arms of Hashem. And all of these concepts are brought about through Psukim that's brought in this Gemara in Chagiga. So what is the Brisa coming to tell us? Obviously, it's a very deep, mystical Brisa. But the simple pshat in the b'risa is that we don't understand on what we're standing. We think that we're on terra firma. We think that everything is firm beneath our our feet, and everything is uh, you know everything is fine. I remember you know a few times when I used to go uh, boating. So sometimes there was uh, a lot of uh, winds, and the the seas got very choppy all of a sudden. And, you know, all you wanted to do was get back to dry land because you felt so scared and so nervous about all of the, the boat going from one side to the other and, and swaying in the, in the waters. And, and you wanted to get back on, on dry land. And once you were on dry land, finally, you were so happy and grateful to be there because you felt that you were so secure. But the truth is that dry land, even though it seems so solid beneath our feet, is really not as solid as we would like to believe it is. It's all like a deck of cards. There is, it's on top of pillars, which are on top of water, on top of mountains, on top of wind, on top of storms. There's so much um, fragility in the world that we're used to, in the world around us, that we don't understand on what we're standing. We stand, but we don't realize how not stable, how not sure it is beneath our feet. And as as rocky as that boat that I was on may have been, but we don't realize that that even on dry land, we're living in very shaky, shaky terrain, and everything is moving and shifting and adjusting beneath our feet. And the only thing that we could be assured of 
is that we're Bizraya Shlakadish Parchu. That Akadish Parchu is taking care of us. He's cradling the world, he's cradling the security of the world. But if Akadish Parchu ever so decides that he wants things to be a little different in the world, all he has to do is shake things up a little bit, and the whole world could theoretically implode because it's very unstable to begin with. The only thing lending its stability is the fact that is, is making sure that everything is, is in one place. But if Hashem wants to change that world order, everything could change literally overnight. And we see this with Parai. Parai is somebody that had so much right before the Makkas, and then the Makkas began, and it was an entirely new world for him. And he wasn't prepared for this world. He never saw it coming. It was so fast and furious that his entire world as he knew it was completely tossed asunder. And, and now uh, he was basically went, as the Gemara says, from a very high place, from a high peak to the lowest of low. Now this is true for Parai, but it's also true, of course, for Klal Yisrael. Klal Yisrael throughout history has a very, very similar experience uh, to these sources that we just said about Parai and about the way everything changed and about how the entire world order is so fragile. There's a Gemara in Baba Basra on Daf Ayin Gimel Amad Bez. The Gemara says that Rabbi Barbar Chana once said about one of his many adventures, this, there's a, a lot of uh, very fascinating stories that Rabbi Barbar Chana uh, treats us to on this daf in Meseches Bava Basra. And one of the stories that he says, and of course there's very deep meaning uh, to, to it, it's not clear if this actually happened or, there is, uh, or it, these are Mishalim, different parables that he was saying, but this is what Rabbi Babrachana says. Zimna Chada, one time, Havikaz Lina Bisvinta, we were traveling on a ship, the Chazinan Hahu Kavra, and we saw a certain fish, the Yasvale, we saw a fish, and we basically settled upon it, the Kadach Agama, and we there was, uh, there was uh, sand on it, and there was also grass growing on the back of this fish. So this is like a very big fish, like a super-sized whale, and it looked to the people on the ship of Rabbi like it was an island, like it was dry land, but it was really a fish. And on this fish, this fish apparently didn't move for a very long time, so sand developed on it, and grass started growing on it. So what happened was we went, uh, we assumed that it was dry land. So we got off our boat and we said, okay, this is great. Let's dock here. And we started baking on the back of this fish, which we thought was an island. And we started making a barbecue on the back of this fish. And when its back grew hot, ishapich, the fish flipped over. The ilav da havimikarva sefinta, 
had it not been that our ship was close by, that we docked it, we anchored nearby, and we would have drowned. What is this Gemara talking about? So, of course, you have to look right away in the Marsha. Whenever you have a Gemara like this, you turn first to the Marsha. And the Marsha says something very fascinating. The Marsha says that this Gemara is really a muscle for us to understand the experience that Klai Yisrael has in Golas. What does that mean? We go and we travel at sea. We're exiled from Eretz Yisrael. And we go, we find a place that we eventually learn to call home. But really, it's a fish. It's not really dry land. The country that we docked at, the country that we, dis- that we disembarked at, was not really as firm as we thought it was. It was a fish. And when we get too comfortable in this host country, and we begin baking and cooking, which of course symbolizes that we feel very comfortable, we feel very at home, we feel that it's our land and that we're citizens, we have equal rights and everything, uh, you know, and we, we, we start taking a lot of actions that flex our, our power in the, in the new country. So the fish is not happy. That country, which is really a lot more unstable than we believe it is, it turns over. And when we flip over, we're back in the, in the stormy, raging seas of Gullus again. And we look for a safe haven that is our next stop on the, on the journey. And wherever we are may look like home and it may feel like home. But until we are in our own land again and we have a base Hamikdash, we are still in exile. This is the story of Klai Yisrael in exile. Klai Yisrael and the, the Meshachachma at the, uh, in Parshat B'chu Kaisai, which everybody knows is, is called the Nevuah of the Meshachachma. It's the prophecy of the Meshachachma. The Meshachachma died before World War II began. And he said this is exactly the pattern of Jewish history, that we go from one country to another. And the first generation that arrives in this new country acts like, uh, like, like guests. And they keep very from, and they keep to their own customs, their own religious uh, practices. And then eventually their children or their grandchildren say, why, why do we have to do this? We don't want to keep the ways of our, of our parents. We want to become full-fledged uh, citizens in the host country. Look, they're accepting us. They're eager to embrace us. And so they begin to loosen up the reins of Tyra and Yiddishkeit and Shmir Shabbos. And then eventually we get kicked out and destroyed from uh, in, in that country. And then we have to run to the next country. And this is the same pattern that repeats itself again and again and again throughout Gaulas. So in the golden age of Spain, the Jews flourished financially. And they held high positions in government. As we know, the Abar Benel, the famous uh, Mefarish, the famous commentator, he was... Uh, one of the G'dayle Adar, but he was also a statesman, he was a financier, and he was the, 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 the cabinet secretary of finance for the king and queen of, of Spain at the time. And in 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain, as is famous, 
And the king and queen pleaded with the Abarbanel to stay, even though they were killing all the Jews or, 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 or exiling them. They wanted very badly that their economy should hold up, so they, they pleaded with him to stay. And of course, he said, no, I'm going to go with my people. And he went from Spain to Portugal, and he became uh, a top advisor to the king of Portugal after that. But this is, uh, again, we were kicked out. We were in that host country. We had a golden era in Spain. Spanish jury enjoyed many years of, of very great uh, comfort and liberty. It was called the Golden Age of Spain, but uh, we were eventually uh, unceremoniously kicked out of, of Spain at one point in 1492. And that was the same thing. That was a fish. We thought it was an island. We thought it was rock solid beneath our feet. We, we, had, a, we had very powerful people in government. We thought that this was going to be a place that we could stay until Mashiach came. And then we found out that we were wrong. And then, of course, if you fast forward to World War II, the freedom that Jews experienced in Germany was great. We were not uh, oppressed in any which way. In the, you know, before the Holocaust, the Jews enjoyed tremendous freedoms and a lot of power. And we were the head of uh, a lot of the great culture of Germany, whether it was music or science or mathematics or any of the other great uh, subjects that, that the Germans excelled in. The Jews of Germany were, were on the top. Nobody believed that such a thing would happen. But yet it happened. The fish that we thought was an island, we thought it was really rock solid, flipped over, and we know from history exactly what happened to the Jews in Germany and Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and, uh, and it became, you know, the tragedy of Gullus, that we feel comfortable in a certain place. We think that what happened yesterday is going to automatically happen tomorrow, but unfortunately we get a, a rude awakening so fast and so quickly that we didn't even see it coming. On October 30th, 1988, I went with my father, Zechayna Levracha, to Kaladas Yishoran, to Washington Heights, and we were living in Long Beach, and we drove to the Heights, and uh, we went there because it was the 50th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, of course, um, was the night of broken glass, and it was the night on which hundreds of shuls throughout Germany and Austria were destroyed. And it was a seminal event initiating the destruction of European Jewry. So Rav Shimon Schwab, Zechit Tzadik Levracha, uh, who was, of course, the Rav of Breuers of Kaldas Yisharan, he gave a very famous address that evening to mark the 50th anniversary of this terrible event of Jewish history. And we're not going to say everything that he said. First, he described exactly what happened that night, how many hundreds of Bate Knesias in Germany and Austria were burned and raised, hundreds of Sifri Tyrant, Phil and Rahman al-Islam were burned, scores of innocent people were killed, thousands of others were arrested, humiliated, and sent to concentration camps, 
And it was uh, therefore very perplexing, said Rav Schwab, why this night was referred to as Kristallnacht, the crystal night or the night of broken glass. Now he says it's true that many hundreds of businesses were ransacked and that glass of Jewish shop windows littered the, littered the streets. But isn't that so trivial compared to all of the, the tremendously great uh, destruction that was committed that night? You have hundreds of shuls and hundreds of Sifrei Torah that were destroyed and innocent people killed and you're worrying about some glass that could be swept off the streets the next morning? Why would it be called the night of broken glass? Obviously, or, or Kristallnacht. Why, why, there obviously is some hashgacha yaina. There must be some, some message for us to take from the fact that this atrocious night was dubbed, was called the night of broken glass or Kristallnacht. So he said like this. He said that perhaps by referring to this night as Kristallnacht, we unknowingly expressed a profound truth. What we refer to as crystal is now what Rashi refers to in his translation of the word habedolach, where it says, habedolach. The real crystal, Rashi explains, is an evan tova. It's a very good, precious stone. And he says that it's a precious white diamond. However, it resembles the glittering glass which we use today to create fancy vases, chandeliers, and the like. When we use the term Kristallnacht, Rav Schwab said, we refer to a period in history which was figuratively similar to our crystal. What is unique about our crystal is that it is a glassy material that appears pure and glitters like precious jewels, but in reality it is only an illusion. Crystal is most vulnerable and, when not handled carefully, will shatter into a thousand pieces. German Jews were fascinated for over 150 years, the years of emancipation, by the magnificent crystal ball of German culture. That crystal ball shattered in November of 1938. The German Jews considered the German people and culture to be like an Eventova, a fine stone, and wished to be a part of the fatherland. They were enthralled by the poetry of Schiller and Goff and by the philosophies of Kant and Schopenhauer. They were enamored by the Deutsche punctuality, music, orderliness, and other traits. However, all this was just pure glitter, a beautiful illusion. But then the shuls were set aflame, and innocent people were hauled away. There was no response from the disciples of Schiller, Goethe, Kant, and, and Schopenhauer, nor by any of the European nations that were part of Western culture. This magnificent crystal ball was smashed to smithereens, and Germany once again became the land of darkness, which is how Yehuda ben Ramesha describes Germany in his Kinna lamenting the slaughter of the Jews of Frankfurt about 700 years ago. On the night of Kristallnacht, these false illusions disappeared. Let us learn from our past and avoid repeating the same mistakes in our own comfortable gullus in America. And this was a warning that Rav Schwab gave in 1988. And it really, you know, 
was a, it was sort of like a warning that I didn't really understand at the time, and I didn't understand it since, really until this week. As we all know, a week ago, uh, last Wednesday, all of a sudden, this country became, you know, a different country. And you saw scenes playing out on on screens, and you heard it on radio stations about how the Capitol, which represents American democracy, was stormed and was looted and by people that really, if they would have been able to do more, they would have probably set it on fire and bombed it and, and killed many senators and, and congressmen or, and women. And all this was instigated by the president of the United States. It's, it's such a, it's really hard to even think about, let alone talk about. But one lesson that we could take from this is that don't ever believe for a minute that we're standing on solid ground. There's no reason to think and to believe, I mean, we could hope, but there's no reason to really believe that the Gullus that we're in right now in America is different than the other Gilgulim of Spain and Germany and many other places that we felt very at home and very comfortable in and suddenly found ourselves in, a, in an unstable terrain. And we have to be mispaul, we have to always daven that the Malchus, this Medina Shal Chesed, which is how Rav Schwab used to call America, Malchus Shal Chesed, it's a, it's a government that is so benevolent to all of its subjects, all of its citizens, and the Jews in particular have enjoyed a wonderful experience. We've been able to have such religious liberties and freedoms and the ability to open up so many shuls and yeshivas and kailalim and and all of the largesse that we have been given by the American government, by the American people, and how comfortable it's been. But just because that's the way it was until now, we can't always assume that that's the way it's going to be tomorrow. And we see that from this parsha, the Nisim of Mitzrayim show how things could flip over so quickly, and that you can go from being a very stable monarchy one minute to being completely chaotic and, and having complete anarchy the next minute. And this is something that repeats itself time and time again. The, the reason why that, that Meshachachma that I alluded to before is known as the Nevuah of the Meshachachma is because there he says that people believe that Berlin is Yerushalayim. This is again, this was at least a decade before the Holocaust. He said people believe that Berlin is Yerushalayim. And in a way, it sort of was. There was uh, uh, the Jews enjoyed tremendous luxuries and tremendous freedoms in in Berlin, as they did in Vilna, as they did in Moscow, as they did in 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 Spain, in the capitals of Spain, and Portugal, and so many of the other Gullison as we that we went through. But somehow, some way, when the Rebbeinu Shlom wants to affect change in the world. He just has to shift his rayas, he has to shift his arms a bit on which everything stands, and suddenly the entire house of cards could begin to collapse, Hashem Mirachim. And so it's something that, you know, we have to think about as we are laning Parshas Va'era and we're going through 
the experiences in the world that always are enlightened by the weekly parsha. So it has to give us pause and and begin to reevaluate our place and how how much stability we actually have and how much bitachon we have in the United States government as opposed to in the Rabbeinu Shleilam. And we have to understand how everything is totally on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we stand on something, but we don't know on, which we're, on what we're standing. We don't realize how fragile democracy is, how fragile the Golas is. Reb Chaim did say, though, and we'll end with this, that the let's the stancia, the last station of Golas, of this long 2,000-year exile, is going to be America. So hopefully, if this is the last stage of our Golas, and this is the uh, the step right before Mashiach comes, then Amir Tzashem HaKadosh is sending us signals to prepare for Mashiach Tzadkenu, Bimheir B'Yamenu, Amen Ba'Amen. I thank you very, very much for attending this evening, and I hope you enjoyed the talk. Good Shabbos.